So I've got a little bit of an extended introduction before, and then we'll sing one more song uh, before we get into the main, actually looking at the text. We're in Isaiah chapter 48. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find that on page 608. This uh, particular chapter stands tall in a very unique way in the sequence of chapters we're doing in Isaiah. Our goal is to do chapters 40 to 66. Uh, Once we complete chapter 48, which will take this week and next week, then after that we will skip ahead to chapter 54 because we've already done 49, 50, 51, 52, and 53. The schedule is inside the bulletin where there's a Sundays at a glance. So Isaiah chapter 48, it stands tall for several reasons. Let me go over them. Number one, it's a natural conclusion to what was just announced in chapter 47, Judgment on Babylon. And when we actually listen to the chapter being read, David Suchet, my question will be to you, in light of the judgment which which is found in chapter 47 last week, what is the corresponding admonition or exhortation or command in chapter 48? Babylon's going to be judged. 48 tells us what should Israel do about that. By extension, what should we do about that, knowing that Babylon is judged? Secondly, chapter 48 stands tall because it's an apt summary of the previous eight chapters before. All the themes that have been developing in chapters 40 to 47 all kind of come to a head. They kind of reach a certain pinnacle now in chapter 48. Everything intensifies and everything that we've learned in those eight chapters is all brought together in chapter 48. Primarily what we've been learning about is the Lord's character. He is both a transcendent God and an imminent God. Transcendent means he is above and beyond us. He's not like we are. He's not just a good old boy. He's not just an improved version of who we are. God is infinitely different than we are. He's unlimited in every capacity of his character. That can't be said of us. And yet he's also imminent. He's a God who draws near. He's a God who redeemed a people to himself. He's a God who has revealed his character, especially in the, in, uh, in the word of God and especially in the person of the Son of God. So he's both transcendent and imminent. We've also seen not only the Lord's character, but we've seen Israel's character. Israel is steeped in sin, idolatry, waywardness, hard-heartedness. And in Isaiah, especially in 40 to 47, you've got this tension. I keep using the word tension, and I use the word drama. It's a drama and a tension that seems quite unresolved. God is holy. His own chosen people are the antithesis of holy. They're not holy in any sense of the word. They're completely given over to idolatry, which leads me to this statement. Unless something or someone... Relents or changes, the relationship will end as an eternal stalemate and deadlock. It will end as an impasse. God is holy, Israel's not holy, and never the two shall meet. It will never be resolved. No matter what God does, He can give them His law, He can wipe out all of humanity with a flood. I got those two events reversed. He can send prophets, He can raise up kings. 
He can give them judges. No matter what God gives Israel in his mercy always results in the same thing. Israel's hard-heartedness. Israel's waywardness. Israel's lack of humility. Israel's lack of faith in that living God. It seems unresolvable. And then we come to chapter 48. I've got a very interesting observation by a man named Ray Ortland Jr. Pastor is Emanuel Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I think he's the one that wrote the really popular book, Gentle and Lowly, which I haven't read yet. A little bit controversial. But uh, Ray Ortland makes a very interesting observation, uh, which I think fits with the introduction. And that is this. A common objection to, to the Bible and to biblical Christianity is this. The reason... One objection, there's many that you could come up with a top ten list, but in the top ten, one of the objections to the Bible, biblical Christianity, is, look, I know some Christians, and they're hypocrites. I know some people uh, who call themselves Christians, and let me tell you, they're not perfect. Let me tell you, they can still lose their temper. They can still make selfish decisions. They still do wrong things. That's why I don't believe in biblical Christianity. Now, if I... If I take that objection and put it in Isaiah, it would look a little bit more like this. Let me tell you, Israel, the reason why I can't believe the Bible is because you're telling me that Israel is the chosen people of God? Like his chosen nation? His treasured possession? Israel above all the nations of the earth? Just look at them. It's not a very cleaned up version of Israel as you read through the Bible. So how in the world can you expect me to believe that God has chosen them to be his own special people, and they are among the worst of nations. And that's an objection. The counter to that, or what, what, what Isaiah challenges with, is don't look at Israel, look at the Lord. Don't look at Israel, look at the Lord. Because it's the Lord's grace that makes Israel what they are. Israel is still a people on the face of the earth, distinguishable from other nations and ethnic groups, in spite of the fact they had no homeland for 1,900 years. How did they not get assimilated into all the ethnic groups of the world? It's the Lord. It's God. They're his chosen people. They remain distinguishable to this day. Put another way, or Ray Ortland develops it this way, he says, the logic of each group is impeccable in its own way. If you identify with this or people that identify with that, their logic is impeccable. Or if you identify with what Isaiah says, his logic is impeccable. It looks like this. The first group, they're basing their conclusion in a premise of works righteousness or self-merit. In other words, they think, like most of the world thinks, if you expect eternal peace, if you expect eternal life, if you expect things to go better in an afterlife than what you experience now, you had better be good. You'd better be good enough. You'd better do a lot of good works to earn that place of favor. And if that's the way it works, their objection is precisely right. You are looking at a hypocrite, and I'm looking at a bunch of hypocrites. Because none of us have arrived at righteousness, a self-righteousness. None of us have. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But Isaiah would challenge that, and he would say, my premise is in God's grace. 
My premise, I don't start with, we've got to make ourselves good enough for the kingdom of heaven. My premise is, God's grace is what fits us for the kingdom of heaven. It's rooted in God, not in us. So if you start with us, all bets are off on the kingdom of heaven. But Isaiah doesn't start with us. Isaiah is saying, uh, God's narrative is not being driven by men. It's not being driven by Israel. It's not being driven by the nations of the earth. God's narrative is not being driven by Washington. It's not being driven by uh, the world, what are they called? what's the world nations, the, what's that group called? You never hear about them anymore. United Nations. It's not being driven by them. God's narrative is being driven by himself. His own providence his own purposes, and he has chosen Israel as a nation to himself. He's called uh, out people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language into this entity that we call the church, the bride of Christ. That's God's grace. It's not our self-righteousness. It's not our self-discovery. It's the grace of God. So now, with that, I want you to listen to uh, Isaiah chapter 48. This is... uh, In your bulletin, there's a pink sheet. This is from the New International Version because that's the version David Suchet chose to read from. It's a wonderful chapter. This is the big picture, and then we'll begin breaking it down. So follow along, Isaiah 48. Isaiah chapter 48. Listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah, You who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. You who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and claim to rely on the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty is his name. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you, so that you could not say, My images brought them about. My wooden image and metal god ordained them. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? From now on I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. They are created now, and not long ago. You have not heard of them before today, so you cannot say, yes, I knew of them. You have neither heard nor understood. From of old your ears have not been open. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You are called a rebel from birth. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you, so as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. 
I am the first, and I am the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they all stand up together. Come together, all of you, and listen. Which of the idols has foretold these things? The Lord's chosen ally will carry out his purpose against Babylon. His arm will be against the Babylonians. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I will bring him, and he will succeed in his mission. Come near me and listen to this. From the first announcement I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And now the Sovereign Lord has sent me, endowed with his Spirit. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea, your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never be blotted out nor destroyed before me. Leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians. Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. That's Isaiah chapter 48. I've got three questions to start us off with. The first one, I've already told you what it is. The question is, in light of the Lord's announced judgment on Babylon, chapter 47, what is the corresponding admonition in chapter 48? Judgment's going to be, judgment's going to fall on Babylon. What's the, what's the admonition? What? That's right. Go out from Babylon. Leave Babylon. I told you last week, Babylon is more than just a historical uh, country in the Middle East. Back when Isaiah wrote, Babylon is the world set against God. Babylon is America. Babylon is, is Decatur. It's Mount Zion. It's where you live. It's a world of priorities. It's a world of value judgments. It's a world of assessments that does not start with God. It starts with man. That's Babylon. And the command that Israel is given... By the way, Israel hasn't even been uh, overtaken by Babylon. This is all prophetic. When he says, go out from Babylon, they've never been taken in exile yet. But there's a concept, there's a sense in which it's true even then that God's people are never to live according to the, to the value system, the worldview of Babylon. We're to live by faith according to what God says is true. It's always been that way. It was true in Isaiah's day. It's no less true in the 21st century. Our priorities, 
our values, our decisions ought to reflect a belief in a kingdom of God which will not be vanquished, which knows no end. That's what we should be driven by. Not the value system of Babylon, whether it's the expression of Babylon in America or the expression of Babylon in the Middle East or the expression of Babylon in some other part of the world. There's only one set of values which will prevail forever. People come and go. Nations rise and fall. But the word of the Lord lasts forever. That's what we're to live by. So that's the answer to your first question. Secondly, why does Isaiah's drama and tension not end in a deadlock or an impasse, which I've suggested over on the right-hand side? Why does it not end in, in gridlock, in an impasse? Why not? According to Isaiah chapter 48. For his own namesake, verse 9. For my own namesake. For the sake of my praise, verse 11. For my own sake. For my own sake. The reason why this is not going to end in an an eternal stalemate is because of God. Because of God's namesake. God has put his reputation, his character on the line by his own choice and so that his name is magnified and exalted and recognized for what it is, God will see to it that this doesn't end in an impasse. Third question, how does the deadlock or the impasse between Israel's sin and God's grace move forward? You don't need to answer this one. I will answer this one for you. How is it that this will be resolved? I said up over on the right-hand side, something or someone needs to relent or change. Does God change his character? No. Does God relent from his plan? No. Does God lower his standards? No. God isn't changing in, in, in any way, shape, or form. So then, the opposite side of the equation, well, then does Israel change? No. Does Israel raise its standards? Does Israel try harder? No. The solution isn't found in God changing lower or Israel rising higher. That's not where the change comes from. That's not where the resolution comes from. The resolution comes from the the person who is suggested in the last part of verse 16 on your pink sheet. I've set it aside separately. We'll learn more about this next week where I read the, the sentence, and now the sovereign Lord has sent me endowed with his spirit. What is going to change is that the Lord is going to send a substitute, a stand-in servant who will reconcile Israel to God in all of his holiness and all of his glory. The substitute servant, which we've already read about because we've done chapters 49 to 53, and we've looked at the servant songs, this substitute servant is going to lay down his life. And his life will provide the righteousness that is missing in Israel. His life will change and reorient the motivations and the desires of Israel's heart so that they recognize the Lord Christ for who he is. So God makes up the difference, but it's not that he lowers himself. He sends himself. And in sending himself, Israel is reconciled to God. We are reconciled to God through Christ. We are not here by our own righteousness. A song that captures all of these themes nicely.
Priestley is the song Only a Holy God, which Darwin taught us some weeks ago. Uh, like most new songs that I learned at first, I'm like, I'm not sure this is a keeper. But once I got to know the song, and some of you already did know the song, it clearly is a beautiful song. And I feel like you should stand. Let's sing with the stereo. Returning to Isaiah chapter 48, let me go over the setting and the context just a little bit. So far, we've got a profile of the Lord. I'm going to reduce it to three points and juxtaposition it against Israel. The profile of the Lord is that He's merciful, He's gracious, He's holy, and He's faithful all through Isaiah. Those things are true. Now, this is in particular, uh, particularly in relationship to Israel. He's those things. He's also those things to us as believers who are part of the church. He's also that to us. But right now in Isaiah, the focus is between the Lord and Israel. He is merciful, gracious, holy, faithful. But he also is going to discipline and judge them. Particularly in Isaiah, he's warned of Assyria and Babylon. Assyria will wipe out the northern ten tribes of Israel in 722 B.C. That was in Isaiah's lifetime. But he also warns about Babylon, a rising power. And Babylon is going to come and wipe out Jerusalem and Judah and take the Jews into exile back to Babylon. And this is the Lord's doing. But the profile of the Lord is that he also saves and delivers. And through Isaiah, he says, though I've sold you off to Babylon, I'm also going to save and deliver you. I'm going to raise up a deliverer. His name is Cyrus the Persian, Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus the Persian, the Persians aren't even on the radar right now. But Cyrus the Persian will be a deliverer who issues a decree, sets you free, and allows you to return to your homeland. I want you to know this is all my doing. That's a profile of the Lord in Isaiah. By contrast, we've got a profile of Israel and Judah. Israel wants to be her own boss. Israel wants to go her own way. Israel wants to be in charge. Does that sound familiar? Because that sounds like me. And that sounds like you. We want, we love, I told you a couple weeks ago, we love the promises of God. We don't like His methods. Or we struggle with his method, methods. Sometimes after the fact, we can look back and we can appreciate and say, you know, I was really frightful. I was really worried. Maybe I was heartbroken. But I can look back many times, not always, but many times and say, you know, I see that God really was working all things together for good to those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. It doesn't, I don't always have that realization. Job didn't have resolution from God, but he learned to trust God in spite of the adversity and the difficulty. So we've got this tension again between the Lord's character and Israel's own profile. What is emphasized most often and repeated more often in Isaiah chapter 48. I don't know if you paid attention. Ideally, what you're doing is you know what chapter we're doing uh, because it's in the bulletin. And so you're reading it in advance, and you become familiar with the chapters so that you're not hearing it for the first time on Sunday morning. But in Isaiah chapter 48, the most often repeated command or statement in Isaiah 48 is, Hear this. The word to hear, or the verb to hear, is used ten times. You will search in vain in your English Standard Version to identify ten instances of listen to this 
but it's there ten times in the Hebrew. Sometimes it's translated by other words and phrases. Um, I'm not sure if I can. I'm not sure if I can find those right now. I thought I. Oh, uh, like in uh, verse three of. Uh, I don't even have an English Standard Bible with me right now. Verse three in, in your in the English Standard says, "The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them." Then suddenly I did them, they came to pass. That word announced is the word here. It's used ten times. So here's the way the the New King James renders it. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. That's actually far more accurate. It's emphasized ten times. Listen, you will never understand or appreciate what God is doing or his character if you're not listening. You won't. It's not going to be a feeling It's not going to be somehow you have this mystical sense that everything is okay. You've got to be listening. And if you're not reading God's word, you're not listening. Because it's not about listening to inner voices in your own heart. They are quite tainted by your sin. Listening requires reading what God has chosen to give us in his word. Listening requires exposing ourselves to what scripture says. That's the most often repeated command in chapter 48. Hear this. Now let me give you an outline. The outline, um, it kind of goes back to uh, the way to illustrate this is I'll start with Sarah. Uh, When she was in college, uh, at Bryan College back in the day, and and, uh, kids got in some sort of a dating relationship, there was always this big moment where they had a define the relationship meeting. Uh, they kind of just, you know, they had to decide what, where's this relationship headed? Uh, Cindy and I met on October 5th or October 5th, 1978. Eight days later, we went on our first date. Another eight days after that, we went on our second date. And then the 17th day, we had a define the relationship uh, question. We, what, where's this relationship headed? And I realized I needed to be in this for the long haul. Because uh, I was thinking my timetable looked a lot different from hers. And for me to try to win her over, I was going to have to kind of play my cards, slow down, and hold my cards a little closer uh, to win her over. It takes a while to warm up to me. Uh, <laughs> so the outline in Isaiah chapter 48 is, uh, this is, uh, let's define the relationship. Let's define the relationship. We've gone through uh, eight, eight chapters prior in this uh, section we're doing. Let's define the relationship. First of all, where we're going to be this morning is we're going to define the relationship in the present moment. The first 11 verses. What does it look like where we're at right now? That's what we're talking about. Secondly, next week, we're going to talk about defining the relationship moving forward. Verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Verses 20. And then we've got three points. We're going to set the stage in this moving forward. There's going to be an urgent appeal, verses 18 to 21. And then there's going to be this dire warning at the very end of the chapter, which is actually repeated later on in Isaiah, this dire warning. So this is the outline for at least the next two weeks. Though to be fair, I've really only uh, done the best I could in studying the first part, what I'm teaching today. I can't promise you I'm going to stick to that part of the outline next week. Uh, if I think I could have done better. So let's uh, talk about defining the relationship in the present moment, the present relationship, verses 1 and 2. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, 
who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. There's an interplay of names here that you don't want to miss. Three names are are given at the outset. The name Jacob, the name Israel, and the name Judah. The name Jacob is not a flattering name. And the Lord quite intentionally is addressing his people and he calls them the house of Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob was a trickster. Jacob was always trying to work things to his own advantage. So listen to this, O deceiver, O house of Jacob. You're called by the name Israel. That's a new name. That's a name given by God himself. You're called by that name. You came from the waters of Judah. I take that commentators are not 100% sure what that means. I take it as you're merely descendants of the tribe of Judah. There were 12 tribes of Jacob. 12 tribes, 12 sons comprised the nation of Israel as a whole. One of those tribes was Judah. Judah is a very noble tribe. It's not an obscure tribe that you read very little about in Scripture. In fact, Jesus Uh, The Messiah comes from the tribe of Judah. David comes from the tribe of Judah. So, they're descendants of Judah. They go by the name Israel. But as the Lord addresses them, the Lord says, you know what I see? I see a lot of Jacob. I see a lot of Jacob. And so, what the Lord sees is a religious hypocrisy. A religious hypocrisy. You swear by the name of the Lord. You confess the God of Israel. You call yourselves after the holy city, that's Jerusalem. You stay yourself on the God of Israel. To stay means to lean upon. You're counting on the God of Israel. You're leaning upon me. But in all of this, the Lord says, it's not truth and it's not right. It's all a show. It's all religious hypocrisy. This is one one of the many reasons in which Isaiah is so relevant to our day. Because we have entire churches and church Christian ministries or people that are glad to identify with the God of the Bible and yet they have no intention or desire to accept his morality or obey his commandments. They think they can redefine it. I don't get to decide what faith in God looks like. I don't get to decide what God's character looks like. I don't get to decide and define what biblical Christianity is. God decides that. I'm either on board with his program or I'm not. And if I'm not on board with his program, I shouldn't be participating in a Lord's Supper. So those persons and individuals and politicians that are glad to identify with some church come election time, but have no interest in God's morality or keeping his commandments, have no business participating, I don't know why churches have a hard time with that. I don't know why they can't just say, look, your lifestyle is antithetical to what God says is true. You're not welcome at this table. Because this table presupposes you are walking in obedience and faith and humility before a living God. So the Lord accuses them of religious hypocrisy, By contrast, the Lord is going to say, I am the exact opposite of that. It reads like this. Verses 3 through 5. The former things I declared of old. They went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. 
because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is as an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old before they came to pass. I announced them to you lest you should say my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. What the Lord is saying is this. While you have this show of religiosity and your heart is far from me, the Lord says, I've been very transparent with you. I've told you all along the way exactly what I'm going to do. I haven't left you guessing as to my character. I haven't left you guessing as to my, my promises for you. I haven't left you guessing how I intend to bring you into the promised land and give you a land flowing with milk and honey and give you cities which you didn't build and you will reap the harvest from vineyards which you didn't plant. The Lord says, everything I promised you happened. It all came to pass, just like I said. I haven't left you guessing. I had no secret agenda, no hidden motives. This isn't like a, you know, Cindy and I often muse uh, with our parents, we muse this, and I think as I get older, I'm musing it for myself, that, you know, when you, when you first go to a, a surgeon or a doctor, they tell you what, what needs to happen. And then after the surgery, it's like, I feel like I was hit by a, a train. And, well, and then you go back and like, I've got all these problems, you know, I'm feeling these. And they're like, well, what do you expect? You just had surgery. I'm like, well, you didn't tell me all this before the surgery, but they just... Well, yeah, because they told you all that before the surgery. You may not want to get the surgery. So they just tell you, this is what needs to happen. Then you experience all these other things you didn't anticipate happening. And they're like, well, yeah, you had surgery. The Lord isn't like that. The Lord was there very upfront about all that he intended to do, all that he was going to do. He's the opposite of Israel. No hypocrisy whatsoever. The Lord's knowledge also included the fact, I know that you are obstinate. I know that you, your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead is brass. And I knew this. I knew that's, that's why the Lord had to say exactly how he's going to take him into the promised land, exactly all the mercies he would bestow on them in advance, because if he hadn't done that, Israel would say, I think we did this on our own. I think it's because of our own power. I think it's because of our own ingenuity. I think it's because of our own might. It's what we do today. Somehow we think whatever gift, talent, or ability you have wasn't first granted to you by God and you're responsible for it. It's a stewardship entrusted by God. It doesn't start with our smarts or our power or our position. It starts with God. And that makes us responsible. And the Lord is calling Israel out. So far, the Lord has demonstrated his own character and abilities. The Lord has also demonstrated Israel's character. And the question is, are they ready to admit as much? That question is raised in the first part of verse 6. The Lord says, you have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? Are you willing to admit it? Are you willing to admit and confess your own hypocrisy and sin and idolatry? Are you willing to admit that I've been faithful to my word? I took you into, into exile just like I promised I would. I brought you out of exile by a man named Cyrus the Great, like, just like I said. Is, are they willing to admit that the Lord has kept his word every step of the way? It's similar to what you find in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul's argument is, God has clearly revealed his character in creation, his power and his wisdom. 
Now, what is mankind going to do with it? You know what mankind does with it? We think it all just evolved naturally. We think it all started somehow with some proteins and some swamp, and one thing led to the next thing and the next thing next, and eventually here we all are. We're the top of the chain until maybe, I guess, at some point we evolve into something even greater. The Lord is saying in Romans 1, I've made it pretty plain where all this came from. I've made it pretty plain who I am, my power, and my wisdom. And you can bury yourself, your head in the sand. It's not going to change the facts. That's Romans 1. That's what the Lord is addressing Israel with in that question in verse 6. Next, the Lord is going to demonstrate his character and his abilities in what is still to come. Future mercies. This is actually uh, to do with Cyrus. So I, don't ha- I can't fit all these words on the screen. So just follow along in your Bible. The second part of verse 6. Uh, And continuing, it goes like this. From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things, which you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you would have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You've never heard. You've never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth, you were called a rebel. The Lord says, I've not only extended all these past mercies in your life, I've not only providentially been leading you and guiding you all along the way, I'm going to continue to do that in the future in a new way that you can't imagine because I'm going to raise up not Moses, not Joshua, I'm going to raise up a pagan ruler by the name of Cyrus and he's going to be your deliverer. You couldn't have guessed that. And if you'd known that ahead of time, you would have treacherously tried to manipulate that bit of information in a way that excluded the fact that I did it. I don't remember if I have that verse. Oh, good, I do. Verse 8b. I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. What's that a reference to again? Jacob. Reference to Jacob. Jacob dealt treacherously. Jacob was always trying to manipulate the situation to advantage himself. Jacob, from before birth, was grabbing his brother's heel. That's part of, the, part of the narrative of Scripture. From before birth, he was treacherous. And the Lord is saying, regarding Israel, you're just like your father Jacob. This is Jacob. This is Israel. To this day, 2021, that is Israel. There's a remnant chosen according to grace, but Israel as a whole still looks like that. Still looks like that. This all begs the question, if the Lord knew all this about Israel, why did he choose them in the first place? And the follow-up question, why has the Lord remained faithful? Why is he he committed given these circumstances? If this is Israel to this very day, why, why in the world would he have chosen them? Peoples of the earth. Grace. Because if God can take Israel and turn them into a treasured people and a treasured nation, then it gives me reason to believe he can change my life too. He can change my heart too. That's why. That's why. Why has he remained faithful and committed? Because his own character is at stake. His own promises are at stake. He's not going to let the world end with, well, Israel never really amounted to much, did they? And so it all transitioned. And I've got good friends that believe this. 
and they could very well be right. It's just not where I'm at. All that was promised to Israel has now been transitioned over to the new Israel, the church. I think the church are the expression of the kingdom of God on earth right now. But I don't think God's done with his people Israel. I think God's character is on the line. He's made promises that are meant to be fulfilled in national Israel. And we will find in Isaiah that there is coming a day where they will be, uh, well, actually, it's Zechariah, where they will look on him whom they have pierced when he comes back in power and glory, and they will mourn for him because they will have recognized they crucified their Messiah. And a nation will be born in a day that is Isaiah. Also, verse 11, and then I think I'm going to open it up for comments and questions. You've got one of our beholds. Uh, The word behold is one of the most important words in Isaiah chapters 40 to 66. I've tried to get you to think early on. When you see the word behold, pay close attention. I think it's unfortunate when some Bibles, like uh, a lot of more modern translations, don't use the word behold because it's not a word we commonly use in life and culture. Uh, You probably don't tell your family, behold, Look what, I've, look what I've done, you know. Uh, you probably just say, look, look at this. But Isaiah uses the word behold, and it, it means stop, pause, don't, don't just casually recognize this. You need to recognize the significance of this. And here you've got a very important behold, where the Lord says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. That is such an interesting verse because it makes very little sense to me. What does it mean, I've refined you, but not as silver? John Calvin, I think, got it exactly right. John Calvin said, if God had refined them like silver, there would be nothing left of them because they're all dross. God says, I've put you, I've sent you into exile I am disciplining you, but I'm not disciplining you as if you had some inerrant goodness in you, like there's some silver nugget of truth, because if I disciplined you hoping for that, I'd wind up with nothing, because there is no silver in Israel. There is no gold. There is no hidden treasure that just needs released by the power of positive thinking. So God says, yes, I've refined you. I'm trying you in the furnace of affliction, but I'm not doing it to bring something good out of you. I'm doing it to show how I am going to put something in you by my servant. And that servant will make you righteous before me. It is the most magnificent gospel in Isaiah. I'm a part of a couple groups uh, on MeWe, actually, and, and there's conversations, and I was saying how at our church we're going through Isaiah 40 to 66, and somebody said, what is a dispensationalist doing spending so much time in Isaiah? I'm like, it's just amazing to me. Isaiah is, is a phenomenal book for Israel. It's a phenomenal book for the church. It's a phenomenal book for the people of God. So having said all that, what are your comments and questions? Thoughts, insights? Anyone? Michelle. So when yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and there's some of those terrific stories in the Bible, right? Where uh, wasn't it King Ahab who's in alliance with Jehoshaphat? And, uh, and, and Ahab is warned, like, God's going to bring you down. And Ahab's like, all right, I'm going to disguise myself. They'll never know I'm the king. And he disguises himself and he dies in battle. 
from a random arrow, an arrow shot randomly, just like this one guy, he's like a new recruit. He didn't go through training. He shot a bow and arrow a couple times. He's like, dude, this is a battle. He just, bing! And it pierces one little spot in Ahab's armor. And he goes off and he dies. Just like God said. Because the purposes of God stand. Jacob was treacherous. Jacob is still treacherous. But there's a new day coming for Jacob. Somebody else? Rebecca. The four nations were, number one, the head of of gold was Babylon. Number two was the Medo-Persian Empire, the silver. Number three, the the thighs were uh, Greece, Alexander the Great. And number four, the below the knees, uh, that's uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, Iron was the Roman Empire. So those four empires were predicted well in advance. Babylon was in existence. The other three were still to come. Daniel had those visions, or uh, Nebuchadnezzar had that vision. So those four. Somebody else? A fitting song for conclusion. I didn't think we'd have time for it, but questions seem a little light. So we will do the song number 25 in your hymnal.